right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by Amy Wu, who's the head of ventures at FTX. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Michael. All right. We've got a lot of really interesting stuff to dig into here. So uh, before we get into like the whole venture environment in crypto and NFTs and the gaming space, which I know you're an expert in, could you give us a sense of your background? So you have this super interesting background as a, both like a, a VC investor in more traditional markets and operator. So give us a sense of where you've been in your career and how you kind of wound up at FTX. Yeah, that sounds great. So uh, I've, I've spent a little bit more time as a venture investor in my career than an operator, um, but maybe like 60, 40. On the venture side, you know, I started my career at um, Inside Venture Partners, which is mm. uh, doing kind of more traditional tech investing, um, you know, across stage, but mostly growth uh, based in New York City. And then, um, you know, was uh, more recently, right before uh, FTX, I was a partner at Lightspeed, which is a large VC fund based out in Silicon Valley, where I was mm. leading our crypto investing and also gaming investing, um, some consumer internet growth as well. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was there, I was leading investments, um, you know, like uh, Alchemy and um, Arbitrum, but then also on the Web2 side, you know, like um, Webull and uh, number and Fortnite, number of gaming companies. Uh, and then on the operator side, so I had spent a few years as a CFO of a software company um, mm. called Welcome, um, based in New York. And then also was an executive at Discovery uh, in actually traditional media. Uh, in, all right. Uh, so it was like Let's very go. different. Yeah. Very cool. Um, all right. So uh, long road, but we're glad that you ended up in crypto. Um, give us give us a sense right now before we get into some of the specifics about what you're focused on the NFT and gaming space. Like, give me a sense of what the venture environment looks like in crypto in general, right? Because I know, like in in macro land, right, we kind of have this era of uh, rising rates, right? A lot of tech startups are kind of struggling. Um, founders are taking big haircuts. Um, it seems like that hasn't really found its way into crypto yet. So give us a sense of like how the market is for for VC, uh, maybe on like the earlier stage in, in crypto? Yep. So a couple of thoughts. So I started investing in crypto in 2017, which, um, you know, actually at the last uh, cycle, right, yep. um, prior to the bear market. And um, if I were to contrast the two, I would say that the universe of investors were not as locked um, in like kind of with overlap as it is this time. So what I mean by that is that the... Um, that the bear that the bull bear market for crypto was a was offset from actually the equities environment um up until i would say this bull market when you actually have a significant significantly much higher overlap of for example tech equities um investors just investors in general um and crypto investors um mm. and so that's why you're seeing more of like a um, like an overlap, I think, in in the two cycles. The and the other thing that's different was in the last bear market in 2018, um, a lot of people honestly exited the space. You yeah. know, people started stop talking about crypto, and it was like a gradual thing. I was saying 2018, people are still talking about it, although you know, um, and then by 2019, right, a lot of people had just exited like crypto, and um, that. Very much like I would predict that that's not going to I mean, that hasn't happened so far in this cycle. And no matter kind of like what your estimate is on how long this bear market might last, like it's not happening this time. Um, mm. And um, and I think, you know, reasons why, like um, the last cycle was a lot more about speculators. Um, mm. And this cycle is a lot more. I think the narrative is really around builders. Um, now, I think that we are still potentially one cycle away from mainstream adoption, mainstream use cases, 
Um, hopefully that will drive the next one, for example. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like still relatively early asset class, right? I mean, that's why you have these like more volatile kind of swings, 50 to 90% de um, declines in um, so to token value um, that you don't really necessarily see in, in equities um, and some of the other asset classes. But, um, but I think like with each cycle, it's, it's, it's coming more mature. And right now, I mean, I would say that when I talk to a lot of the builders, they're like, we're not checking token prices on a daily basis. You know, um, some of them are grateful yeah. for having a raise in the bull market and they're all building right now. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say maybe one of the other big differences as well, like at the um, at the end of that 2017-2018 cycle, you did see VC investment peak like a couple months after the the market kind of topped. Um, and that's a pattern that I think is repeated this time. But I think maybe one of the big differences is just the raw amount of capital that's entered the space, right? Just huge. Absolutely. Uh, fund, right? Like, and that's, that's funds that were already deployed in kind of like later stage companies. But also it seems like there's a lot of kind of dry powder sitting on the sidelines. And that, you know, that idea, right? Like Andreessen, right? To just point at one raise like $4 billion and one and a half billion was marked for like seed stage deals. So I'm kind of doing math, like how the hell can they even deploy that money anyway? Um, but uh, maybe that explains a little bit about how, because, you know, from me talking to kind of my, my network of founders, it seems like it's still, uh, capital is still readily available um, and uh, valuations haven't adjusted an enormous amount. Is that something that you're seeing on your side of things? Or like, how are you kind of thinking about valuations and kind of the earlier stage of uh, crypto investing? Yeah, I would say, um, a couple of months ago, uh, capital sort of retrenched and people were just waiting. Um, the same thing actually happened at the very beginning of COVID. And uh, actually, investors that were really aggressive took advantage of that time and um, actually invested fairly heavily and got some great structured deals. I remember this happened to Airbnb. This happened to a lot of the you know big tech companies. Oh, yeah. And um and uh, um, because I mean, people did not expect a V-shaped recovery, right? Um, no. This time, I think that um, to your point, VC funds uh, had and, and new funds had all sort of raised like billions of dollars of capital actually in the bull market, and so there is absolutely so much um, capital on the sidelines. My um, my experience though is that rounds are taking a little bit more time to to close, and mm. there is a little bit of like capital actually. Um, like sort of concentrating around the more experienced teams that are raising um, rather it. than I would say like during the bull market, I mean, it was truly like you had a deck and people were doing literally no diligence and they were yeah. throwing in a check at like, you know, pre-product, pre-revenue, <laughs> pre-launch at like a hundred million FEV <laughs> oh um, or like yeah. equity valuation. Right. And I would say that that's not really happening right now at the seed mm. stage. Um, which is all in all like a much healthier place. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, the, the capital flight to quality is absolutely happening and because there's so much capital still, um, the rounds are absolutely getting raised pretty quickly. Um, more in the C series A, um, in my experience, I think the later stage rounds um, are getting smaller. Um, the valuations are coming back to earth. A lot of the valuations in a growth stage round is being pegged to, you know, actually like equity market um, multiples, which um, the delta between now and um, and bull market is extreme. And I can give a couple of examples of that, like yeah. in fintech when, you know, as of last fall, right, I think your average multiple um, was, uh, was something like 25 times EBITDA. And now it's like around like between like seven to 10. Um, so around like, um, uh, more than like five to 10. So it's really adjusted significantly. And so at the growth stage, I would say the rounds are much longer to be raised and also, um, 
uh, and also like kind of just like down to valuations are down to earth. Do you see any opportunity between kind of the valuation in like private equity in crypto versus like tokens? Like my understanding is, um, and again, I'm not, you know, involved in the investor side of things as much, but you know, what I've kind of heard is that, well, tokens are relatively cheap compared to maybe some of the, like the private equity opportunities that are, um, that are kind of existing in crypto. How do you kind of assess, or like, do you, th- do you see a, a, like discontinuity in between like crypto, like public to- liquid token valuations versus private equity? And if so, like, how do you kind of suss out the opportunity in between those two? Um, by private equity, do you mean like investing in the equity? In the equity, yeah. The in the equity, yeah. The equity part of the company, yeah. Um, I feel like the two have always sort of like come hand in hand where, mm. you know, you're actually pegging a little bit to the equity valuation. And by the way, like the first thing we always think about is how does the entrepreneur think think about um, value accretion uh, to the equity versus token part of the project? Uh, yeah. One thing that I think that we have observed is that there, what we've seen is that it's actually pretty difficult to create sustained token value. Um, mm. And so I think whereas before, um, an investor um, very readily would just say, of course, this token is going to create a lot of value and it will be worth $10 billion or whatever the, you know, the, the peg is. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, there has been so many tokens that has really lost like 90% plus of their value, like in, in this market that um, an investor is, um, is going to take a little bit more pause in thinking about what that might look like. And um and so, but the, but the two have always sort of come hand in hand. You're thinking about how much equity uh, as an entrepreneur are you willing to sell to an investor? And then, of course, on the token side, you're thinking about that, but you're also thinking about decentralization. And of course, like, you know, I would say in general, um, you know, owning, having an investor owning anything like north of like, let's say 10% um, is kind of not seen very favorably in the community. And so mm. there's that consideration for the token side. How do you think about, because uh, you come from, you know, a, a much more traditional kind of VC background, right, at, at Lightspeed. Um, so I'd be curious, like, do you think your kind of Web2 VC instincts have, like, served you well uh, in the space? Or are there, like, new dynamics uh, that you think in being a being a, a venture investor in Web3 that you kind of had to to learn? Like, I kind of see the guys at Multicoin, I was talking about how you want to own the relationship with the customer, right? And that's where there's going to accrue value. And then there's, like, this kind of uh, Web3 crypto native ethos, which is, fat protocols, right? And value accruing at the layer of like, you know, Bitcoin or ETH or like the layer one, basically. So like, how do you kind of pair off your your more traditional background in Web 2 investing instincts with this this new world of Web 3? It's definitely a bit of both. Um, I think yeah. I've learned so much and particularly since I joined FTX around um, the different ways to uh, build value as a um, create value as a crypto investor. Um, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot more you can do when you have a token, right? You can participate in liquidity, um, pools. You can, um, you can farm, you can farm, you you know, you can stake the investment. You're participating in governance. It is a lot more complex and active management. I would say, um, you there's also a timing component to it, right? Because you have cycles. And so, um, not like, um, not managing the position to some of the cycles sometimes is, um, is is like an issue like with with crypto and um and like a great crypto investor is able to thread the needle between like playing some of that timing and then also um supporting the project on a long-term basis uh and so the um and then once the token is is um liquid and you have the crypto hedge funds are all really focused on timing actually um Mm -hmm. and and that really like um dictates what where the pricing 
is actually. So I would say those components are all very like um, specific to crypto investing that I've learned in the space. Um, and um, versus I think that a quality of, um, of crypto investors that is maybe like not as um, deeply um, held or like, you know, does, does uh, that experience isn't like as deep is this, is this concept of like company building um, that in venture, you know, at, for example, at Lightspeed, there's essentially 25 years plus of muscle yeah. memory um, of like the uh, senior partners there with building companies across multiple economic cycles. Um, what does it mean? When to be aggressive, when to be defensive, um, when to um, hire the right people, right teams. Um, and uh, because, you know, liquidity comes uh, um, oftentimes very quickly in crypto. And so, um, and also many of these founders, this is the uh, first businesses that they've ever actually built. A lot of them mm -hmm. actually do not come from Web2, which actually me, I start changing like um, in this cycle. But um, and so I think there's like a lot of new learnings. And um, and anyway, I like, try to bring that lens from um, Web2 venture investing over over in crypto as well. And yeah. just advise like some amount of patience and long term, like long term thinking around building, but also um also being reckon, rec recognizing that in crypto, the cycles are 24 seven and happen much faster. Yeah, they certainly do. Um, do you have kind of a thesis on, you know, like when, when you go back right, to 2017, 2018, like a lot of the, the great companies that got funded in that era were a direct response to some of the problems uh, that, that existed back then, right? So back then there was like no capital markets infrastructure as a professional investor to uh, like get access to crypto, right? So you had like kind of these very prime brokerage, like these BlockFi companies get funded, and those were very capital markets focused. Um, do you have a sense of like now we've just seen a, a rollover in in CFI in general, right? There's been a lot of uh, you know explosions of like leverage, some trust issues there. Uh, we've seen the growth of gaming and NFTs, which I know you're deep into. Do you kind of have a thesis right now that there's like you know there's some I guess downtime, so to speak, or it's certainly not like a crazy bull market anymore. Do you have kind of a thesis for the next like couple of years about what are going to be big focus areas for the industry? Yeah, maybe I'll highlight a few that we think about a lot on ventures. Yeah. Um, one is that the infrastructure layer is far from established. You know, mm. the standards, the um, uh, multi-chain versus single chain versus maybe two or three dominant chains, all of these things are... Um, like, what does the infrastructure layer look like? Is there going to be a cross-chain, like, um, independent messaging and identity layer? Will um, a social network incumbent or not actually own that layer? Like, mm. a lot of these questions are um, are unsolved right now. And so I would say that there is a pretty massive battle right now for dominance of the infrastructure layer. Mm. Um, and the interesting thing also is um, that the... And then if you look at the application layer in... Um, in crypto, there's um, there is yet to be these like super large um, dominant application players. There's a mm. few emerging, and that can be like you know OpenSea and Magic Eden, um, you know um, MetaMask and some others that really have accrued like large numbers of, of users. Um, but I would say that like, what does the next wave of that look like? And um, does um, are the incumbents going to um, actually have a pretty massive uh, advantage because they have existing distribution already? Or will a new player um, actually build a killer, you know, sort of consumer or like enterprise application and, mm. um, and be able to kind of build like this, you know, like kind of full stack 
like Web3 native um, company. Um, maybe it's a combination of the two. Um, I think that that is really going to be the next wave of innovation happening in the space. Um, some some trends there that I kind of see um, a lot of conversations going on around the identity layer. Now, the identity layer um, is one of the biggest unsolved problems in um, in crypto. Um, it's uh, it's probably the single thing, um, uh, maybe the single thing barring like mass adoption right now. The fact that there is like literally rug pulls left and right. Um, also, it's extraordinarily difficult to use any DeFi tool for a normal person. I mean, I am slightly terrified every time I transfer assets from Me MetaMask myself. Yeah, um, yeah. Of, of like great value, you know, like yeah. of any material value. And um, and that's pretty much like, I would say like unacceptable for like uh, mass adoption of, of this space. And um, and that's like kind of like a combination of UX issues, but then also like identity and security and safety. And so um, th- there has been a lot of false starts. There has been, there have been companies trying to solve this for um, years now. N- nobody has gained tra- traction. Um, I have this like vague thesis that I actually think that um, an independent platform will not win this, that actually like somebody with the distribution will solve the identity layer. Um, I do actually think potentially like um, either an incumbent or a new social network or messaging application with a very large distribution of users may well solve the, um, the, the layer, this, um, this problem, right? Um, and, and, all, um, and for example, create what might be like, for example, the Facebook Connect of um right. of crypto and um and so i think like that is sort of tbd as to who to, who's going to win that um it's like an extremely interesting space can you give us can you give us like an example uh i mean just for the audience who might be trying to, to follow along here like when you say the the digital identity layer right is that like maybe like a meta kind of comes in and says okay like we're leaning into web3 and we'll build this on maybe this uh this like you know the ethereum layer or whatever but like here's a digital little like wallet address that can point to this real life identity or like what would like let's say an incumbent uh like web2 kind of social media giant like how could they win this space in web3 like what would this so like, like you can imagine um like a, a social network, I'm already, you know, they already have, let's say millions of users like um, signing in all the time. Um, let's yeah. say they, let's, let's use the example of an incumbent wins this space. So um, maybe Meta, maybe someone else like Reddit, Snapchat, um, Discord might go out and say, okay, um, now we're going to like launch um, uh, Web3, uh, the, your ability to interact with us on Web3 assets. Maybe that's an empty marketplace. Maybe that's ability to collect tokens on their platform from one of their communities. Um, you know, there's the community points with like Reddit, right? Yeah. That they've um, been talking about for the last couple of years. Um, then there's, um, you can imagine that at that point, perhaps they ask the user to um, authenticate into um, what is their identity layer. Like, okay, we want you to be safe and we want you to know that you can interact with safe third party um, you know, communities on our platform. And so authenticate here um, by like, like perhaps like integrating your DeFi wallets, like in, um, into this platform, all of a sudden they have your identity actually with their equivalent of a blue check mark that then you can bring that um, identity with you and then sign into other accounts because you've already signed in once with um, whatever is the social network that has that. And then once you sign into um, another um, another app, maybe you allow the first app to actually collect the information of like what you're doing, interacting, what, what NFTs you're buying, or what assets you're collecting on that second app. And then suddenly you have like essentially Web3, web, web three, uh, Facebook Connect. 
Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, I think maybe people, <laughs> the, the super crypto natives, will have mixed uh, mixed feelings about a meta uh, winning that. But I guess we'll yeah, see. I think they will absolutely because I mean this concept is extraordinarily centralized. You know, when I talk yeah. to some friends in the space, um, I mean they're kind of like that's a bit sacrilegious. And why are we even? Why why does Web three <laughs> or blockchain um, protocols even exist if we're just going to replace one centralized stack with another centralized stack? Um, and, um, I mean, it's a question as to whether the end user cares about the decentralization. You, people talk a lot about, right, and maybe from like even a much earlier period of time, just because of the narrative that emerged around Bitcoin, right, as this like global store value, this new form of money, there was this like kind of uh, Bitcoin versus banks, right, narrative that people will be very familiar with in this space. But it makes a lot of sense, right? Like if the ultimate version of crypto is kind of like online property rights and, and all that kind of thing, then Web 2 versus Web 3 could be a big dynamic that you could see emerge. I was actually a little surprised to see when Zuck did Meta, which... I have real mixed feelings about because on the one hand, I just respect it. It's such a bold move. And I think that's like to bet the company like that and change the name and invest that much. And like he's, you know, he's getting pummeled for that right now. But, you know, it's still anybody's game, I think. Um, so I, I respect the move. But also it's like, do we really want Facebook? Because he could be a really good. Uh, he He's not a missionary, right? He's uh, he's definitely like a very sharp, uh, you know, operator and he could. You know, he's definitely, I'm not sure he's in line with the crypto ethos. So I could kind of see his involvement going either way, honestly. Yeah, I think a lot of both incumbents and new um, new players have the ability to really win significant market share in this evolving landscape. And so yeah. it may be meta, it may not be in any case. I mean, if you take even meta, right? And if you take, if you look at the macro of what is potentially like, you know, um, a declining as business, like um, at least in, for example, on Facebook. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And um, you know they've got to continue staying a few steps ahead and innovating themselves. Um, you know, like Microsoft, like any large incumbent does. Um, and they're basically battling at the same time um, these like native um, crypto companies with no debt, right? That is um, iterating faster than they are um, with you know less resources. You know, like in distribution. That th- those are two areas that you know they have. Um, an upper hand on, but I mean, that's sort of been sort of like, you know, since the dawn of, of tech cycles, always that tug and pull. <laughs> I agree. Um, let's talk about some, uh, some frontier areas that you're involved in. I'd love to get your perspective on gaming in general. I know that's something that you did again in your past life. And I've heard you talk about you as a gamer as well, playing Diablo, et cetera. Uh, a, a couple, a little while ago, maybe like six or nine months ago, whenever you went on the Bankless podcast, there's a real uh, backlash, right, from more traditional gamers and gaming studios about NFTs. And they were kind of roundly rejecting this idea of, uh, you know, kind of play to earn or play and earn, right, which has become popularized in crypto. Um, kind of walk us through, like, what is the response, I guess, in traditional gamer land to NFTs and then, uh, like, or just uh, get, like play to earn, work to earn in general? Um, and then, like, what's your kind of investment and thesis on the space? Yeah, um, my thesis really hasn't changed all that much, to be honest. Um, and there continues to be a lot of activity in the space. Uh, first, like we're as excited as ever that in gaming um, is potentially one of the major pillars of um, mm. mainstream adoption of um, you know uh, like tokens, right? And um, and and NFTs um, because again, like it's such a natural extension of that. Like gamers have 
long found value in digital objects, right? And to, um, basically cr- um, collect them in a medium that is like much more flexible, right? You can take mm. it out of this ecosystem. It's not so much closed garden. Um, it seems like a natural sidestep. Um, there is like definitely a dichotomy, I think, um, in the West versus e- uh, East, like in terms of gamers. There has actually long been like in the gaming world. And as a quick aside, like, yeah, I've been um, a gaming investor longer than crypto. So it's super interesting to see the two worlds collide just for myself. Like, yeah. um, I've long been like super uh, excited about all of the innovations going on in gaming. Um, the gaming space, particularly mobile gaming, if you like um, look a level uh, higher, has been sort of going through a bit of a crisis right now. Um, mm. IDFA, um, which really changed the ability for casual gaming, uh, mobile games, and um, particularly hyper casual, and also I would say like midcore um, games to tar- and hardcore uh, midcore games to really target specific users has been um, significantly impacted um, on the negative for iOS. Um, and then there's a sec- second um, trend going on right now where um, Google Android has recently announced that they're changing their um, ads, like um, sort of, I would say policy around how a gaming company can uh, place ads in their in their game uh, to actually create, promote a better user experience. And there's been, you know, some um, discussion around how first, like I think a lot of ad dollars moved from iOS to Android in, uh, during the IDFA um, uh, ish, like initiative. And then now, like, you know, potentially there's going to be a second large hit in certain gaming on um like sectors in um, on Android as well. And so what's happening is um, there's like been a decline in monetization for a lot of games. Um, and also in this macro environment, a lot of declining, um, uh, you know, multiples also in the gaming sector has led, and this is after a huge high, right? So like during COVID, um, gaming was, the gaming sector was one of the biggest benefactories because when people stay indoors, um, they play games. And play so, games. Yeah. yeah. And so it was actually off the back of a huge, like, um, rise of this entire sector, you see kind of like a adjustment back in the land, all of these more like negative um, influences has led to a consolidation in a space, like so many um, M&A, like mergers that you see from Microsoft to like others. And also um, actually like an, an active interest in gaming studios to look for what is the next frontier. Um, Web3 uh, uh, games remains like a very interesting design space for gaming companies. And I would say there's hardly a gaming company that's not at some point like interested in at least throwing a couple of experiments um, in, in that space, right? If you think about a gaming company, at least an incumbent one, they are run as a portfolio. At any point, there are new games being designed, launched in hopes that like one of them will become very large. And so it is mm. quite like natural for one or two of these experiments to be crypto games. Um, yeah. Now, the, the the larger the larger narrative around crypto games has been like, oh, is the space dead? You know, all of these Ponzi's, Ponzi games that really kind of like died right in the last like yeah. couple of months, particularly in this bear market environment. Um, now, that is like um, that is it, it is one environment. I mean, but I would argue that most of these games are actually quite like hyper casual or casual in nature. And these games have really short cycles anyway. Um, the longer cycle games that are much harder to build like whether it's an mmo or like a triple a type of quality of game or like these more involved like rpg games are still in development they actually raised funding and have been in development for the last like few months since the bull market and they're not probably going to be launched for the next 12 months right it takes years to build one of these games which is why i'm like um my thesis has long been um 
okay, there's hundreds of these games being developed right now, these Web3 games. The probability that one or more of them don't become a hit is actually quite low, like from a probability perspective. And so I'm super um, still excited about that. You know, we at FTX Ventures has invested in a portfolio of almost a dozen of them this year. And so we're super excited to see when they launch, like, you know, how they go. Um, understanding that if you look at investing in gaming, investors that have invested in the space for a long time invest in a portfolio because the success curve is very stark. Like mm. the top 20 games in the world right now probably make up like the vast majority of revenues in gaming. Yeah. And every year, maybe there's a couple of indie hits that break out. Um, you know, 90 plus percent of all games that launch will fail. Um, and so that's why, like, that's my expectation of our portfolio. And, you know, we invested in the most experienced, like game entrepreneurs, like I think in this space, um, and, you know, hopefully they'll go well, but like, so that's like a bit of a, a, a color around that. The, the last thing I'll say is that, um, I had visited, um, Korea a couple months ago and was just like super like, um, amazed to see how progressive, the large gaming companies were there in terms of experimentation in Web3. They have multiple games launching. You know, some of them are taking the step, um, the bull step in building their own blockchain as well. Um, and um, and so like, I think there's, it's like a, a bed of innovation that had a bit of a pullback with the collapse of Terra Luna since it's so, um, you know, so heavily impacted the Korea market. But um, yeah, so much innovation going on in Asia um in the gaming space and so yeah i think over the next like couple of years we'll continue seeing a lot of innovation in that space yeah i would tend to agree with you i've got a, a you designed or you you um you indicated that like web3 might be a new design space for gaming i'd be curious to get your your thoughts on what is possible um using web3 as a design space for a game that wasn't necessarily possible in the analog like you know a lot of the backlash right was around kind of the model of like play to earn and having there be a monetary component as opposed to just a pure play component in the game but like it's easy to look at something like not to pick on any but like axie infinity and say look at these graphics this game isn't particularly fun it's just not as good as what came before yada yada but like what is the thing that's better right what is possible to do in a web3 gaming environment that was simply not possible to have happen in what sort of came before um i i think the uh, particular innovation of axie infinity is like they took what was a gray market before which is having like for example like you know um, gold farmers in these like more sort of lower cost markets and yeah. um, and then allowing um, this arbitrage right to happen between like someone who's willing to pay for that um, for that kind of farming um, that has basically existed since like the, the dawn of gaming mm. um, and because like um, you can as one player own the wallet that owns the Axie assets suddenly you have this form factor that is like very conducive to um like uh, to actually like allowing, you know, these farmers that are interacting with your assets, right? Um, which kind of gave rise to this concept of guilds. And um, they essentially, um, whereas before you sort of had um, um, stakeholder risk uh, where, you know, maybe, you know, like I, I remember some of my friends used to play like, you know, exchange items in World of Warcraft by like you buy their uh, pencil, like, you know, on, on like eBay for like, like right. a thousand dollars in exchange yeah. for like an item mm. in the game and then like are you actually going to get the item or not you're not really sure right there's a lot of risk right 
around that. And that is like solved through um, like somebody actually owning the keys to wallet. Um, I'm just using that as an example. Obviously Axie had um, in, like innovated a lot more than that, but one, it basically facilitates making a gray market not so gray. Um, the second thing is that um, more fundamentally, it is an open market economy system, right? Um, what the, the items that you grind and the tokens that you, um, that you essentially earn in a game can then be readily traded on an open market. It, um, it actually, like there's always been some speculators in a game, but you really open up this, um, this economy for, for speculators. That's really in interesting. That. So like even like selling, like you can build assets in this game that you can maybe sell to people in the outside world, but like even having characters in a, in a sandbox type environment, be able to transact internally with no external payment processing or whatever just seems really smooth. Right. And I think Axie- It's smoother. It's smoother. Really yeah. smooth. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. So this is really- Hypothetically. Okay. So, yeah. Hypothetically, it's really smooth. Yeah. I will say yeah, yeah. that like um, the experience <laughs> in, in of like, yeah, in, in practice experience of actually like- like going on exchange, buying currency, then downloading a non-custodial wallet, transferring the assets to that non-custodial wallet, then bridging to another like um, to an end game. Like that, that experience is not smooth, right? No, but like um, no. theoretically, it can actually like reduce friction quite a bit. But then also, um, also just provide an open economy versus the um, previous closed economy of every other game that's really been created, um, like today. D- do you think that um, – because we saw Axie build their own uh, decks, right? They had Ronin. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see these games like building their own in, like almost like in-game financial infrastructure, right? Like a decentralized exchange, custodian, whatever, like whatever that like full-service capital market stack is? Or do you see them plugging in to DeFi infrastructure, like leveraging liquidity from Uniswap, for instance? Yeah. Um I have my personal belief, which is that I think that um, most gaming studios will stick to what they really do best, which is create amazing content. And I think that creating DeFi protocols is a very different skill set. Um, and so I would say I'm that like you. most most studios would choose will choose to go down that route, and that's what I see. But I mean, I mean, Axie's team has like great ambitions, and so the fact that they're able to do that is is great for them. I agree. Yeah. And I have nothing burst back for the team, but I, I'm a believer in competencies as a company and you can't have infinite competencies, right? So I, if you say you're going to... Yeah. I believe that as well, philosophically. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about NFTs in general. This is a really interesting space, right? We just came off NFT NYC, enormous amount of energy there. Um, so talk to me about, and you were excited about that. I know you want to, um, you know, kind of chat about this on this on this interview. So what are you seeing kind of in, in NFT land, uh, both in terms of like kind of the funding environment and investments and, and team building that's happening, but also like any trends or themes that you're seeing that you're particularly excited in? Yeah, I mean, um, I've been spending a lot of time of my time in the NFT space since, you know, we started building our relationship with Yuga Labs actually at the beginning of the year. And then we mm-hmm. subsequently essentially co-leather around and then um, also, you know, was pretty involved with like helping them set up their, um, uh, well, helping actually like what is like the sister DAO, right, get set up, um, Acoin yeah. DAO. And then, you know, where I'm still very, very active on the, on the board there. And, um, and just seeing this um, space sort of like mature, uh, from just like PFPs to uh, companies with like the ambition to build tech products and um, build a brand. So like merchandise and entertainment and um, and media um, has been really, really fascinating. Um, I think that NFT NYC is going to go down as the biggest event, crypto event of this year. Um, that was Bitcoin Miami last year, but I think this year it is like 
and a TNYC. Like, mm -hmm. um, like if you include all of the side events, the people who were just in New York City experiencing what were some of the most elaborate events, um, uh, like thrown and experiences. I think events is like almost like um, making light of what these experiences created by like the. Um, you know, Asuki team and like the Yuka team and um, Cool Cats and all the other awesome um, like Lucha projects, but also like, you know, up and coming projects as well. Um, mm. And it was like a coming together of NFT brands, really projects with um, real life brands that are all like interested in seeing what was going on, but also like seeing some of that collaboration start playing out. Um, and, um, and like, so it's been a space that um, I found a lot of inspiration in because I think that um, these are brands, NFTs are brands ultimately, yeah. and um, they're they're taking different approaches. Each each team is like kind of taking a different approach right now with like who they want to be. Like, are do they want to create some of these experiences first party, um, or are they actually like embracing their sort of identity as ultimately an IP company and working yeah. with the best partners actually, like um, to create experiences games um movies etc and um and so it's been amazing seeing that like with each team um you know i've had the great pleasure of like speaking with most of the teams and um it's been also interesting off the back of N nft nyc it generated so much interest that i mean i would say like almost every project is raising right now and um and so i think we'll see a number of those rounds being like announced in the next few months and um and then like, and then we'll see like the creation of hopefully like a real utility in the space, you know, real products being built with like brands that actually have like, you know, decades of experience building luxury goods or like beverages and everything else, you know, kind of under the sun. And, um, and I, I'm really hoping that there will be a few NFT projects that really emerge as like the next like mega brands of the space. Yeah. How would you say, could you describe like a couple of the different approaches that you see NFT projects taking? Because my, my thought looking at the NFT spaces in general, like these are IP companies, right? And yeah. this is like, like the way I sort of view it internally, it's like, okay, there's an initial raise, right? Like there's a fundraise, the, the primary sale of the NFTs, right? That's like the fundraise to build out the IP. And then the revenue model is secondary sales. And the way yeah. that you generate more revenue model, like the secondary sales that the kind of turnover is by investing in and building that IP to create a community that people want to be a part of. Is that like the working kind of primary model? Is there another way that NFT communities are thinking about thinking about it? Like how would you uh, sort of break things out? So I would say that most projects aren't thinking about it in such tactical um, terms, although like inevitably that does happen. They're thinking first and foremost, for the most part, about the communities that they are. Yeah. Um, that they are creating, right? And so, um, as you can imagine, brands, whether that is like, you know, Marvel or, um, you know, Disney, like, or well, women, Marvel, you know, like the, the, the individual Disney brands or like, you know, luxury brands, um, like the LVMH group um, and like, or maybe even like hotel brand. Like, um, I would say that each of them starts with like thinking about like, what is their target demographic? What are, what's the culture they're creating with that brand, right? And then, and then, the, um, and, and it starts with a core um, segment of that and being able to define it clearly. And then um, from there, and I think like when you see, when you look at right now, like the best um, NFT uh, projects, they are extraordinarily good at building community first and foremost. Mm. And then that's why they have created what is right now like valuable IP. Um, 
so, um, but then expanding that because right now I think there's like 10,000, you know, PFP projects, right? Like, and <laughs> right. so you got to expand your community beyond just like yeah. 10,000. One way okay. is to launch a token. Um, and then like, like kind of another magnitude of order of magnitude of people can participate in your community that way. And then you're on the clock. You've got to like provide value for that community on a regular basis. Otherwise people um, are going to like dump the token, you know, um, yeah. inevitably. And so, um, but like, even that is not enough. Like how do you actually create like millions of fans in your space and how do you balance that out with inevitably, if you have what is a luxury brand, like how do you not, um, cannibalize the um, elite eliteness of your luxury brand, right? By bringing like yeah. you know another five million people eventually into that fold. Now that there's five million people, I think in NFTs right now, but eventually, hopefully, there is. Otherwise, the space will continue to be niche. Um, and so, these are all I think the questions that some of the most advanced like NFT projects are thinking through. And um, in speaking with all um, with the different teams. I find that like there is like a quite a range of an ability to articulate that very crisply. And mm. I think um, people who can articulate that for themselves and then execute on it with a team with experience um, are going to probably stall. Um, and uh, and they'll have, you know, what is an initially like um, strong brand and maybe like you'll see consolidation in the space, right? Where um, we're different, like you know, TIP actually consolidate together. Um, but the ones that, are able to have a clear vision and go after what they want to build. Um, will I'm I'm like optimistic that we'll definitely see some successes in the space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know we've got a uh, we're on the, the tail end of our time here, but uh, maybe if there's one thing that you're excited about, um, I know we've talked about uh, NFTs, gaming as areas that you're like really particularly leaning into and spending a lot of time thinking about and investing in. But if there's any like one particular trend where you're like wow, not a lot of people are talking about this. This is a, a really super cool area. Um, any, any particular spots to kind of point out that we might not have been able to cover yet? I don't think it's anything that people haven't talked about. Um, but I mean, people have been talking about what the next like iteration of consumer-friendly Web3 products might look and feel like. That is yeah. really exciting for um, you know your average retail person who's like onboarding crypto for the first time. Um, pe but people say that, and yet there's actually surprisingly few products that I would say reaches <laughs> yeah. that bar. And so yeah. um, constantly looking for that, you know, like um, who's going to build um, an app of deep utility to a user, whether that is like, I, I don't know, like some sort of like, um travel app or you know housing app or transportation app like things mm -hmm. that we do every single day um that is um you know gamified with a token or something like that um uh like i, I think i think what you finally will see in this cycle is that very experienced entrepreneurs have been who have been studying like this phenomenon of like you know web3 and crypto um, will finally be ready to incorporate those elements um, into their applications. And, um, and I think that um, when that happens, like suddenly I think crypto, crypto native investors will be like competing head to head with like, you know, um, long time, like, you know, tech investors as, I mean, we already are doing like mm. for, um, to back these companies. And, um, and that will also give rise to, like potentially like more mainstream adoption of, of this space. Um, people, this is not a new idea. Yeah, I think people have been predicting this for a while, but I, I think we're finally primed to finally get there with these products. Yeah. 
Awesome, Amy, you've been super generous with your time. If folks wanna find out more about you, the work you're doing at FTX, what's the best way to follow you or get more information? Um, they can find me at Amy Tongwu on, on Twitter and my DMs are open. Awesome, sweet. Amy, thank you so much. This was really fascinating. We'll have to do it again soon. Thanks so much, Michael. Cheers. Cheers.